0: Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our July 2016 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. The 2014 update of the Florida Best Practice Psychotherapeutic Medication Guidelines for Adults with Bipolar Disorder is a clinical reference sent to all providers who care for Medicaid recipients in Florida, but which may be of great interest and practical use for all prescribers of medications for bipolar disorder. This update is intended to provide frontline clinicians with a simple, evidence-based approach to choosing treatments for the three main phases of bipolar disorder, acute depression, acute mania, and maintenance treatment. The guidelines were developed through an interactive consensus process that included representatives from the Florida Agency for Healthcare Administration, pharmacists, healthcare policy experts, mental health clinicians, and experts in bipolar disorder. Unlike some guidelines that use expert opinion when good studies are lacking, these guidelines try to recommend only those treatments that have been well studied. The guidelines suggest that better proven and safer treatments be used before those with less evidence or greater risk. In this way, safety and risk of harm are balanced against potential benefit. Treatments with lower quality evidence are recommended only if higher level treatments were found to be ineffective or not tolerated, because a patient might prefer them, or because they worked before for a patient. These guidelines are designed to encourage evidence-based, safe prescribing first and are presented in a format that is simple and easy to use. Adults who are treated with selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors show higher rates of fracture and bone loss, but are these rates increased in children and adolescents as well? Using Medicaid claims data from Ohio, Gracious and colleagues examined data from over 50,000 youth aged 6 to 17 who were diagnosed with a new episode of depression between 2001 and 2009. Fracture rates were compared with those who were prescribed antidepressants and those who were not. Fractures occurred in 11.6% of the sample. After adjusting for many demographic and clinical variables, the authors found that the risk of sustaining a fracture was 3% higher in those currently prescribed antidepressants. The first 30 days of antidepressant use was the period of highest risk. The risk for fracture returned to the lower rate when antidepressants were discontinued. The authors recommend that clinicians routinely assess their depressed patients for fracture risks, including history of a low-impact fracture, family history of fractures, and intake of calcium and vitamin D. Treatment for panic disorder typically involves cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, or pharmacotherapy. However, randomized controlled trials indicate that psychodynamic psychotherapies also have efficacy for some anxiety disorders. Milrod and colleagues undertook a two-site study at Weill Cornell Medical College and the University of Pennsylvania, in which 201 patients with panic disorder with or without agoraphobia were randomized to receive CBT, panic-focused psychodynamic psychotherapy or applied relaxation training that was delivered in 19 to 24 sessions over 12 weeks. Their study received funding support in part from the National Institute of Mental Health. The most symptomatic patients dropped out of relaxation training significantly more than they dropped out of CBT or psychodynamic therapy. At Cornell, no differences emerged on the primary outcome, which was change over time on the panic disorder severity scale. At Penn, however, relaxation training and CBT resulted in significantly more improvement than psychodynamic therapy. A significant site-by-treatment interaction for response was seen at Cornell, where psychodynamic therapy had a response rate of 71 percent, CBT had a rate of 65 percent, and relaxation training had a rate of just 30 percent. At Penn, however, the rates did not significantly differ. Penn patients were more symptomatic, differed demographically from Cornell patients, and had a greater likelihood of taking medication. But these differences didn't explain site-by-treatment interactions. The authors found that all treatments substantially improved panic disorder, but the most severely ill patients found relaxation training less acceptable. CBT showed the most consistent performance across sites. However, results from psychodynamic therapy showed promise. In this Menninger Foundation-sponsored study, The authors conducted a large-scale psychometric study of the Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Scale, the emerging gold standard measure for characterizing suicide risk. To date, no study has assessed the underlying latent structure of the measure, and there are limited data available for the predictive validity of the scale. The authors set out to address these gaps in the literature. Results indicated that the Columbia scale comprises two distinct underlying constructs accounting for over 65% of the measure's explanatory power. The first factor included the severity of suicidal ideation and all the suicide-related behavioral items. The second factor included items related to the frequency, duration, and controllability of suicidal ideation as well as the deterrence against acting on suicidal thoughts and the underlying drivers of suicidal ideation. Overall, the Columbia total score and factor scores were significantly correlated with other well-known suicide measures. Most importantly, the total score, factor scores, and most severe form of suicidal ideation were predictive of suicide-related behaviors six months after discharge from the hospital. Of note, the total score and the severity behavioral factor score demonstrated adequate true positive and false negative values for predicting post-discharge suicide-related behaviors. Although the Columbia scale has solid psychometric properties and merits use as a suicide risk assessment measure, The authors caution against applying any single measure to the prediction of suicide-related behaviors due to the complex set of genetic, neurological, and environmental life stressors that create vulnerabilities underpinning suicide risk. The non-medical use of prescription stimulants among college students is a matter of public health and clinical concern. In this month's Me offering, the authors of this study aimed to evaluate the characteristics of college students who misuse stimulants. Their work received funding support from the National Institutes of Health. This cross-sectional study collected rates of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or ADHD, substance use disorders, and other psychopathology. Data were collected from college students who misused prescription stimulant medications, not including cocaine or methamphetamine, and college students who did not misuse stimulants, the control group. Between May of 2010 and May of 2013, college students were blindly assessed for psychopathology and substance use disorder by structured psychiatric interviews and by self-report questionnaires. The final analysis included 198 controls and 100 stimulant misusers. Misusers, when compared to controls, were more likely to endorse alcohol, drug, alcohol plus drug, and any substance use disorder. When a subset of stimulant misusers was examined, roughly two-thirds met criteria for a full or sub-threshold prescription stimulant use disorder. Misusers also had higher rates of conduct disorder and ADHD. They had significantly lower scores on global assessment of functioning. Most importantly, higher rates of misuse were reported with immediate release relative to extended release stimulants. Specifically, no misuser who met criteria for a stimulant use disorder endorsed misusing extended release preparations. The authors conclude that compared to controls, college students who misuse stimulant medications are more likely to have ADHD, conduct disorder, stimulant and other substance use disorder, and overall dysfunction. Additionally, extended-release or non-stimulant medications are likely more appropriate for college-age students due to their lower abuse liability to read this article and take the see-me post-test, please visit the July table of contents at psychiatrist.com. Brain-derived neurotropic factor or BDNF plays an important role in the proliferation, differentiation, and survival of neurons during the development process of the nervous system. It may also relate to the development of obsessive-compulsive disorder or OCD. Moreover, Levels of nocturnal adrenocorticotropic hormone, ACTH, and cortisol have been shown to be significantly higher in patients with OCD than in healthy controls. This study compares serum BDNF, ACTH, and cortisol levels among 29 children with OCD prior to treatment, along with 25 healthy controls. It also aims to assess any correlation between OCD symptom severity and BDNF, ACTH, and cortisol levels. Study results show that cortisol, ACTH, and BDNF levels were significantly higher in the patients with OCD than in the control group. Depression ratings and gender had no effect on BDNF levels, while age had an effect on BDNF levels independent of OCD severity. Similarly, depression ratings and gender had no effect on cortisol levels, whereas age affected cortisol levels independent of OCD severity. The authors conclude that BDNF levels adaptively increase as a result of the damaging effects of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis hyperactivity on brain tissue in the early stages of OCD. These abnormalities and BDNF may play a role in the pathogenesis of OCD. In this small study sponsored by the National Center for Complementary and Integrated Health, researchers found that twice-weekly Swedish massage significantly decreased the signs and symptoms of both anxiety and depression when compared with a control light-touch condition for patients with generalized anxiety disorder. What the authors find exciting about this research is that the improvement in symptoms was present in both masked clinician ratings and in patient self-report ratings of anxiety and depression. Patients reported improvement not only in their physical symptoms of anxiety, but also in psychic symptoms, as well as feelings of anger and hostility, fatigue, and general negative affect. This study is the first monotherapy trial of massage for generalized anxiety disorder. The results suggest that an opportunity exists to extend treatment approaches beyond traditional pharmacotherapies and psychotherapies. Particularly in light of reports that almost half of all people with anxiety disorders seek some type of complementary and alternative medicine for their condition, Research such as this study may help both clinicians and the lay public better understand how and when to consider using or adding complementary and alternative therapy. In this government-funded study, researchers aim to clarify the prevalence of anger and impulsivity and its associated factors through a nationwide survey of adolescents in Japan. They analyzed a self-administered questionnaire about personal data, lifestyle, mental health status, and feelings of anger and impulsivity from 95,000 junior high school and high school students. Almost 9% of the participants were considered to have experienced intense anger and nearly 8% intense impulsivity. Feelings of anger were significantly higher among students who smoked, consumed alcohol, skipped breakfast, did not wish to go to university, had short sleep duration, had decreased positive feelings, had increased depressive feelings, or used mobile phones for longer hours. Intense impulsivity was significantly higher among students who smoked, consumed alcohol, skipped breakfast, did not participate in club activities, did not wish to go to university, had short sleep duration, had decreased positive feelings, had increased depressive feelings, or used mobile phones for longer hours. These results suggest that healthy lifestyle habits good sleep habits, and improved mental health are important for preventing intense feelings of anger and impulsivity among adolescents. From a clinical psychiatric perspective, the findings from this study may be helpful for the diagnosis, screening, and treatment of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and other psychiatric diseases. Suicides in hospitals rank among the top five serious events reported to the Joint Commission. The Commission's 10-year database includes over 800 reports of suicides in hospitals, with 25 percent taking place in emergency departments and general medical and surgical units. While the Joint Commission mandates screening all hospitalized patients for acute suicide risk, fulfilling that task, in an evidence-based and cost-effective way needs to be explored. Researchers from the University of Vermont conducted a study to see if an easy-to-use, electronic, tablet-based suicide risk assessment tool could match risk assessment and treatment recommendations made by an experienced, board-certified psychiatrist following a clinical interview of a patient. Their aim was to develop a tool that would replicate the psychiatrist's assessment of a patient's risk of committing suicide in a hospital within 72 hours, replicate the recommended intervention of the psychiatrist, and be acceptable to the patient. The authors found that the tool, which uses a novel neural network mathematical model to triage patients, replicated clinical decision-making and had significant practical advantages, including short administration time and a high level of patient satisfaction. The value of the tool is not in predicting actual suicides, but rather lies in its implementation in settings where experienced psychiatrists are not easily available. The study received funding support through grants from the Fletcher Allen Foundation and the University of Vermont Medical Group. While sexual dysfunction is not a defining symptom of major depressive disorder, it is prevalent among individuals with this illness. Little is known, however, about the relationship between depression and sexual functioning in adolescents and young adults. Drawing on a study funded by the National Institute of Mental Health, investigators analyzed data from 235 participants with and without major depressive disorder who were 15 to 20 years old. After controlling for age, female sex, SSRI use and generalized anxiety disorder, the presence of major depressive disorder was associated with a lower score on the changes in sexual functioning questionnaire overall and on its subscales. The use of SSRIs was not associated with sexual functioning, either in the overall sample or in those with a major depressive episode. Beck Depression Inventory items related to affective symptoms rather than cognitive functioning accounted for the association between depression and lower sexual functioning. Furthermore, as Beck Depression Inventory scores increased, males exhibited a steeper decline than females in both the total score of the Changes in Sexual Functioning Questionnaire and the Desire subscale. Anxiety was not significantly associated with sexual functioning. The authors conclude that depression in older adolescents is associated with lower sexual functioning, particularly in males, and that this association appears most related to affective symptoms. Sleep-related eating disorder is a condition that presents with abnormal eating and drinking behaviors. These behaviors typically happen in a partially to fully unconscious state. Researchers from Japan conducted a study to clarify the prevalence, clinical features, and factors associated with sleep-related eating disorder in psychiatric outpatients taking hypnotics. 1,048 patients who were taking hypnotics participated in the study. They completed a questionnaire that included demographic questions, the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index, or PSQI, and questions regarding the presence of abnormal behavior during sleep, especially sleep-related eating disorder and sleepwalking. 8.4% of the subjects had experienced these behaviors, which was thought to be higher than the prevalence in the general population the group with sleep-related eating disorder was significantly younger and had higher total PSQI scores and higher bedtime doses of hypnotics than the other subjects. Multiple logistic regression analysis revealed that younger age, taking two or more kinds of antipsychotics, and taking a higher bedtime dose of a hypnotic were significantly associated with sleep-related eating disorder. To better understand the precise mechanism of sleep-related eating disorder in these patients, the authors recommend a prospective future follow-up study to examine the changes in symptoms along with changes in both treatment content and illness severity through the clinical course. This study was supported by a grant from the Japan Society for the Promotion of Science. It's well known that patients with schizophrenia have increased rates of many cardiometabolic risk factors. In this month's Clinical and Practical Psychopharmacology offering, which is the first in a two-part series, Dr. Andrade looks at the magnitude of the problem and discusses the role of exposure to antipsychotic drugs. The full text of this month's column is freely available online. Please visit the July Table of Contents at Psychiatrist.com. In this issue, we highlight the following educational activity. How do your patients gauge recovery from depression? Restoring function in areas like home, work, and relationships is an important treatment goal for patients. Explore this seeming activity, supported by an educational grant from Forest Laboratories, to find out about practical rating scales to monitor areas of function and learn specific interventions to target functional impairments. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the July issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the publisher's podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.